Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Time Traders by Andrea Norton. Your narrator is Adam von Bueller. Volume 3. Chapter 5. He might have said yes, but that didn't mean, Ross discovered, that he was to be shipped off at once to early Britain. Ashes Tomorrow proved to be several days later. The cover was that of a beaker trader, and Ross's impersonation was checked again and again by experts, making sure that the last detail was correct, and that no suspicion of a tribesman, no mistake on Ross's part, would betray him. The beaker people were an excellent choice for infiltration. They were not a closely-knit clan, suspicious of strangers, and alert to any deviation from the norm, as more race-conscious tribes might be. For they lived by trade, leaving to Ross's own time the mark of their far-flung empire in the beakers found in graves scattered in clusters of a handful or so, from the Rhineland to Spain and from the Balkans to Britain. They did not depend only upon the taboo of the trade road for their safety, for the beakermen were master bowmen. A roving people, they pushed into new territory to establish posts, living amicably among peoples with far different customs, the Downs farmers, horse herders, shoreside fisherfolk. With Ash, Ross passed a last inspection. Their hair had not grown long enough to require braiding, but they did have enough to hold it back from their faces with hide headbands. The kilt tunics of coarse material, duplicating samples brought from the past, were harsh to the skin and poorly fitting but the workmanship of their link and plate bronze belts, the sleek bow guards strapped to their wrists, and the bows themselves approached fine art. Ash's round cloak was the blue of a master trader, and he wore wealth in a necklace of polished wolf's teeth, alternating with amber beads. Ross's more modest position in the tribe was indicated not only by his red-brown cloak, but by the fact that his personal jewelry consisted only of a copper bracelet and a cloak pin with a jet head. He had no idea how the time transition was to be made, nor how one might step from the polar regions of the Western Hemisphere to the island of Britain, lying off the Eastern. And it was a complicated business, as he discovered. The transition itself was a fairly simple, though disturbing, process. One walked a short corridor and stood for an instant on a plate while the light centered there curled about in a solid core, shutting one off from floor and wall. Ross gasped for breath as the air was sucked out of his lungs. He experienced a moment of deathly sickness with the sensation of being lost in nothingness. Then he breathed again and looked through the dying wall of light to where Ash waited. Quick and easy as the trip through time had been, the journey to Britain was something else. There could be only one transfer point if the secret was to be preserved. But men from that point must be moved swiftly and secretly to their appointed stations. Ross, knowing the strict rules concerning the transportation of objects from one time to another, wondered how that travel could be effected. After all, they could not spend months or even years getting across continents and seas. The answer was ingenious. 
Three days after they had stepped through the barrier of time at the outpost, Ross and Ash balanced on the rounded back of a whale. It was a whale which would deceive anyone who did not test its hide with a harpoon, and whalers with harpoons large enough to trouble such a monster were yet well in the future. Ash slid a dugout into the water, and Ross climbed into that unsteady craft, holding it against the side of the disguised sub until his partner joined him. The day, misty and drizzling, made the shore they aimed for a half-seen line across the water. With a shiver born of more than cold, Ross dipped his paddle and helped Ash send their crude boat toward that half-hidden strip of land. There was no real dawn. The sky lightened somewhat, but the drizzle continued. Green patches showed among the winter-denuded trees back from the beach, but the countryside facing them gave an impression of untamed wilderness. Ross knew from his briefing that the whole of Britain was as yet only sparsely settled. The first wave of hunter-fishers to establish villages had been joined by other invaders, who built massive tombs and had an elaborate religion. Small village forts had been linked from hill to hill by trackways. There were factories, which turned out in bulk such fine flint weapons and tools that a thriving industry was in full operation, not yet having been superseded by the metal imported by the beaker merchants. Bronze was still so rare and costly that only the headman of a village could hope to own one of the long daggers. Even the arrowheads in Ross's quiver were chipped of flint. They drew the dugout well up onto the shore and ran it into a shallow depression in the bank, heaping stones and brush about for its concealment. Then Ash intently surveyed the surrounding country, seeking a landmark. Inland from here. Ash used the language of the beakerman, and Ross knew that from now on he must not only live as a traitor but also think as one. All other memories must be buried under the false one he had learned. He must be interested in the present rate of exchange and the chance for profit. The two men were on their way to outpost Gog, where Ash's first partner, the redoubtable Sanford, was playing his role so well. The rain squished in their hide boots, made sodden strings of their cloaks, plastered their woven caps to their thick mats of hair. Yet Ash bore steadily on across the land, with the certainty of one following a marked trail. His self-confidence was rewarded within the first half-mile when they came out upon one of the link trackways, its beaten surface testifying to constant use. Here Ash turned eastward, stepping up the pace to a ground-covering trot. The peace of the road held, at least by day. By night, only the most hardened and desperate outlaws would brave the harmful spirits roving in the dark. All the lore that had been pounded into him at the base began to make some sense to Ross as he followed his guide, sniffing strange wet smells from the brush, the trees, and the damp earth, piecing together in his mind what he had been taught and what he now saw for himself until it made a tight pattern. The track they were following sloped slightly upward, and a change in the wind brought to them a sour odor, blanking out all normal scents. 
Ash halted so suddenly that Ross almost plowed into him. But he was alerted by the older man's attitude. Something had been burned. Ross drew in a deep lungful of the smell and then wished that he had not. It was wood, burned wood, and something else. Since this was not possibly normal, he was prepared for the way ash melted into cover in the brush. They worked their way, sometimes crawling on their bellies, through the wet stands of dead grass, taking full advantage of all cover. They crouched at the top of the hill while ash parted the prickly branches of an evergreen bush to make them a window. The black patch left by the fire, which had come from a ruin above, had spread downhill on the opposite side of the valley. Charred posts still stood like lone teeth in a skull to mark what must once have been one of the stockade walls of a post. But all they now guarded was a desolation from which came that overpowering stench. Our post? Ross asked in a whisper. Ash nodded. He was studying the scene with an intent absorption which, Ross knew, would impress every important detail upon his mind. That the place had been burned was clear from the first, but why and by whom was a problem vital to the two lurking in the brush. It took them almost an hour to cross the valley, an hour of hiding, casting about, searching. They had made a complete circle of the destroyed post and Ash stood in the shadow of a copse, rubbing clots of mud from his hands and frowning up at the charred posts. They weren't rushed, or if they were, the attackers covered their trail afterward, Ross ventured. The older man shook his head. Tribesmen would not have muddled a trail if they had won. No, this was no regular attack. There have been no signs of a war party coming or leaving. Then what? demanded Ross. Lightning, for one thing, and we'd better hope it was that. Or... Ash's blue eyes were very cold and bleak, as cold and bleak as the countryside about them. Or... Ross dared to prompt him. Or we have made contact with the Reds in the wrong way. Ross's hand instinctively went to the dagger at his belt. Little help a dagger would be in an unequal struggle like this. They were only two in a thin web of men strung out through centuries of time with orders to seek out that which did not fit properly into the pattern of the past, to locate the enemy wherever in history or prehistory he had gone to earth. Had the Reds been searching, too, and was this first disaster their victory? The time traders had their evidence— when they at last ventured into what had been the heart of outpost Gog. Ross, inexperienced as he was in such matters, could not mistake the science of the explosion. There was a crater on the crown of the hill, and ash stood apart from it, eyeing the fragments about them, scorched wood, blackened stone. The reds? It must have been. This damage was done by explosives. It was clear why Outpost Gog could not report the disaster. The attack had destroyed their one link with the post on this time level. The concealed communicator had gone up with the blast. Eleven. Ash's finger tapped on the ornate buckle of his wide belt. We have about ten days to stick it out, he added, 
and it seems we may be able to use them to better advantage than just letting you learn how it feels to walk about some 4,000 years before you were born. We have to find out, if we can, what happened here and why. Ross gazed at the mess. Dig? he asked. Some digging is indicated. So they dug. Finally, black with charcoal smudges and sick with the evidences of death they had chanced upon, they collapsed on the cleanest spot they could find. They must have hit at night, Ash said slowly. Only at that time would they find everyone here. Men don't trust a night filled with ghosts, and our agents conform to local custom as usual. All of the post people could be erased with one bomb at night. All except two of them had been true beaker traders, including women and children. No beaker trading post was large, and this one was unusually small. The attacker had wiped out some twenty people, eighteen of them innocent victims. How long ago? Ross wanted to know. Maybe two days. And this attack came without any warning, or Sandy would have sent a message. He had no suspicions at all. His last reports were all routine, which means that if they were on to him, and they must have been, judging by the results, he was not even aware of it. What do we do now? Ash looked at him. We wash. No, he corrected himself. We don't. We go to Nojern's village. We are frightened, grief-stricken. We have found our kinsmen dead under strange circumstances. We ask questions of one to whom I am known as an inhabitant of this post. So, covered with dirt, they walked along the trackway toward the neighboring village with a weariness they did not have to counterfeit. The dog sighted, or perhaps scented them first. It was a rough-coated beast, showing its fangs with a wolf-like ferocity. But it was smaller than a wolf, and it barked between its warning snarls. Ash brought his bow from beneath the shelter of his cloak and held it ready. Ho! Oh, one comes to speak with Nodrin, Nodrin of the hill. Only the dog snapped and snarled. Ash rubbed his forearm across his face, the gesture of a weary and heartsick man, smearing the ash and grime into an awesome mask. Who speaks to Nodrin? There was a different twist to the pronunciation of some words, but Ross was able to understand. One who has hunted with him and feasted with him, the one who gave into his hand the friendship gift of the ever-sharp knife. It is Asha of the traitors. Go far from us, man of ill luck, you who are hunted by the evil spirits! The last was a shrill cry. Ash remained where he was, facing into the bushes which hid the tribesmen. Who speaks for Nodrin yet not with the voice of Nodrin? he demanded. This is Asha who asks. We have drunk blood together and faced the white wolf and the wild boar in their fury. Nodrin lets not others speak for him, for Nodrin is a man and a chief. And you are cursed! A stone flew through the air, striking a rain pool and spattering mud on Ash's boots. Go and take your evil with you! 
Is it from the hand of Nodrin or Nodrin's young men that doom came upon those of my blood? Have war arrows passed between the place of the traitors and the town of Nodrin? Is that why you hide in the shadows so that I, Asha, cannot look upon the face of one who speaks boldly and throws stones? No war arrows between us, traitor. We do not provoke the spirits of the hills. No fire comes from the sky at night to eat us up with a noise of many thunders. Lurgha speaks in such thunders. Lurgha's hand smites with such fire. You have the wrath of Lurgha upon you, traitor. Keep away from us, lest Lurgha's wrath fall upon us also. Lurgha was the local storm god, Ross recalled. The sound of thunder and fire coming out of the sky at night. The bomb. Perhaps the very method of attack on the post would defeat Ash's attempt to learn anything from these neighbors. The superstitions of the people would lead them to shun both the sight of the post and Ash himself as cursed and taboo. If the wrath of Lurga had struck at Asha, would Asha still live to walk upon this road? Ash prodded the ground with the tip of his bow stave. Yet Asha walks, as you see him. Asha talks as you hear him. It is ridiculous to answer him with the nonsense of little children. Spirits so walk and talk to unlucky men, retorted the man in hiding. It may be the spirit of Asha who does so now. Ash made a sudden leap. There was a flurry of action behind the bush screen, and he reappeared, dragging into the gray light of the rainy day a wriggling captive whom he bumped without ceremony onto the beaten earth of the road. The man was bearded, wearing his thick mop of black hair in a round topknot secured by a hide loop. He wore a skin tunic, now in considerable disarray, which was held in place with a woven, tasseled belt. Ho, oh, so it is Lal of the quick tongue who speaks so loudly of spirits and the wrath of Lurga. Ash studied his captive. Now, Lal, since you speak for Nodrin, which I believe will greatly surprise him, you will continue to tell me of this wrath of Lurga from the night skies, and what has happened to Sanfra, who was my brother, and those others of my kin. I am Asha, and you know of the wrath of Asha, and how it ate up Twist Tooth, the outlaw, when he came in with his evil men. The wrath of Lurga is hot, but so too is the wrath of Asha. Ash contorted his face in such a way that Lal squirmed and looked away. When the tribesmen spoke, all his former authority and bluster had gone. Asha knows that I am as his dog. Let him not turn upon me his swift-cutting big knife, nor the arrows from his lightning bow. It was the wrath of Lurga which smote the place on the hill, first the thunder of his fist meeting the earth, and then the fire which he breathed upon those whom he would slay. And you saw this with your own eyes, Lal? The shaggy head shook an emphatic negative. Asha knows that Lal is no chief who can stand and look upon the wonders of Lurga's might and keep his eyes in his head. Nodrin himself saw this wonder. And if Lurga came in the night, when all men keep to their homes and leave the outer world to the restless spirits, how did Nodrin see his coming? Lal crouched lower to the ground, his eyes darting to the bushes and the freedom they promised, then back to Asha's firmly planted boots. I am not a chief, Asha, 
How could I know in what way or for what reason Nodrin saw the coming of Lurga? Fool! A second voice, that of a woman, spat the word from the brush which fringed the roadway. Speak to Asha with a straight tongue. If he is a spirit, he will know that you do not tell him the truth. And if he has been spared by Lurga... She showed her wonderment with a hiss of indrawn breath. So urged, Lal mumbled sullenly, It is said that there came a message for one to witness the wrath of Lurga in its descent upon the outlanders, so that Nodrin and the men of Nodrin would truly know that the traitors were cursed and should be put to the spear should they come here again. This message, how was it brought? Did the voice of Lurga sound in Nodrin's ear alone, or came it by the tongue of some man? Aye! Lal lay flat on the ground, his hands over his ears. Lal is a fool and fears his own shadow as it skips before him on a sunny day. Out of the bushes stepped a young woman, obviously of some importance in her own group. Walking with a proud stride, her eyes boldly met Ash's. A shining disc hung about her neck on a thong, and another decorated the woven belt of her cloth tunic. Her hair was bound in a thread net fastened with jet pins. I greet Casca, who is the first sower. There was a formal note in Asha's voice. But why should Casca hide from Asha? There has been death on your hill, Asha, she sniffed. You smell of it now, Lurga's death. Those who come from that hill may well be some who no longer walk in their bodies. Casca placed her fingers momentarily on Asha's outstretched palm before she nodded. No spirit are you, Asha, for all know that a spirit is solid to the eye, but not to the touch. So it would seem that you were not burned up by Lurga after all. This matter of a message from Lurga, he prompted. It came out of the empty air, in the hearing not only of Nodrin, but also of Hangor, Ephar, and myself, Casca, for we stood at that time near the old place. She made a curious gesture with the fingers of her right hand. It will soon be the time of sowing, and though Lurga brings sun and rain to feed the grain, yet it is in the great mother that the seed lies. Upon her business... Only women may go into the inner circle. She gestured again. But as we met to make the first sacrifice, there came music out of the air such as we have never heard, voices singing like birds in a strange tongue. Her face assumed an awesome expression. Afterward, a voice said that Lurga was angered with the hill of the men from afar, and that in the night he would send his wrath against them, and that Nodrin must witness this thing so that he could see what Lurga did to those he would punish. So it was done by Nodrin, and there was a sound in the air. What kind of a sound? Ash asked quietly. Nodrin said it was a hum, and there was the dark shadow of Lurga's bird between him and the stars. Then came the smiting of the hill with thunder and lightning, and Nodrin fled, for the wrath of Lurga is a fearsome thing. Now do the people come to the great mother's palace with many fine offerings that she may stand between them and that wrath. Asha thanks Casca, who is the handmaiden of the great mother. 
May the sowing prosper and the reaping be good this year, Ash said finally, ignoring Lal, who still groveled on the road. You go from this place, Asha? she asked. For though I stand under the protecting hand of the mother and so do not fear, yet there are others who will raise their spears against you for the honor of Lurka. We go, and again thanks be to you, Casca. He turned back the way they had come, and Ross fell in beside him as the woman watched them out of sight. Chapter 6 That bird of Lurgas, said Ross, once they were out of sight of Casca and Lal. Could it have been a plane? Sounds like it, snapped his companion. If the Reds have done their work efficiently, and there's no reason to suppose otherwise, then there is no use in contacting either Dorta's town or Munga's. The same announcement concerning the wrath of Lurga was probably made there, to their good purpose, not ours. Casca didn't seem to be overly impressed with Lurga's curse, not as much as the man was. She is the closest thing to a priestess that this tribe knows, and she serves a goddess older and more powerful than Lurga, the Mother Earth, the Great Mother, goddess of fertility and growth. Nodrin's people believe that unless Casca performs her mysteries and sows part of the first field in the spring, there won't be any harvest. Consequently, she is secure in her office and doesn't fear the wrath of Lurga too much. These people are now changing from one type of worship to another, but some of Casca's beliefs will persist clear down to our day, taking on the coating of magic and a lot of other enameling along the way. Ash had been talking as a man talks to cover up furious thinking. Now he paused again and turned toward the sea. We have to stick it out somewhere until the sub comes to pick us up. We'll need shelter. Will the tribesmen be after us? They may well be. Let the right men get to talking up a holy extermination of those upon whom the wrath of Lurga has fallen, and we could be in for plenty of trouble. Some of those men are trained hunters and trackers, and the Reds may have planted an agent to report the return of anyone to our post. Just now we're about the most important time-travelers out, for we know the Reds have appeared on this line. They must have a large post here, too, or they couldn't have sent a plane on that raid. You can't build a time-transport large enough to take through a considerable amount of material. Everything used by us in this age has to be assembled on this side and the use of all machines is limited to where they cannot be seen by any natives. Luckily, large sections of this world are mostly wilderness and unpopulated in the areas where we operate the base posts. So if the Reds have a plane, it was put together here, and that means a big post somewhere. Again, Ash was thinking aloud, as he pushed ahead of Ross into the fringes of a wood. Sandy and I scouted this territory pretty well last spring. There is a cave about half a mile to the west. It will shelter us for tonight. Ash's plans would probably have been easily accomplished if the cave had been unoccupied. Without incident, they came down into a hollow through which trickled a small stream, its banks laced with a thin edging of ice. Under Ash's direction, Ross collected an armload of firewood. He was no woodsman, and his prolonged exposure to the chilling drizzle made him eager for even the very rough shelter of the cave, so eager that he plunged forward carelessly. 
His foot came down on a slippery patch of mud, sending him sprawling on his face. There was a growl, and a white bulk rushed him. The cloak rucked up about his throat and shoulders, then saved his life, for only stout cloth was caught between those fangs. With a startled cry, Ross rolled as he might have to escape a man's attack, struggling to unsheath his dagger. A white-hot flash of pain scored his upper arm. The breath was driven out of him as a fight raged over his prone body. He heard grunts, snarls, and was severely pummeled. Then he was free as the bodies broke away. Shaken, he got to his knees. A short distance away, the fight was still in progress. He saw Ash straddle the body of a huge white wolf, his legs clamped about the animal's haunches, his hooked arm under the beast's head, forcing it up and back while his dagger rose and sank twice in the underparts of the heaving body. Ross held his own weapon ready. He leaped from a half-crouch, and his dagger sank cleanly home behind the short ribs. One of their blows must have reached the animal's heart. With an almost human cry, the wolf stiffened convulsively. Then it was still. Ash squatted near it, methodically driving his dagger into the moist soil to clean the blade. A red rivulet trickled down his thigh where the lower edge of his kilt tunic had been ripped up to the link belt. He was breathing hard, but otherwise he was as composed as always. These sometimes hunt in pairs at this season, he observed. Be ready with your bow. Ross strung his with the cord he had been keeping dry within the breast folds of his tunic. He fitted an arrow to the string, grateful to be a passable marksman. The slash on his arm smarted in protest as he moved, and he noted that Ash did not try to get up. A bad one? Ross indicated the blood now thickening into a stream along Ash's thigh. Ash pulled away the torn tunic and exposed a nasty-looking gash on the outside of his hip. He pressed his palm against the gaping wound and motioned Ross to scout ahead. See if the cave is clear. We can't do anything until we know that. Reluctantly, Ross followed the stream until he found the cave, a snug-looking place with an overhang to keep it dry. The unpleasant smell of a lair hung about its mouth. He chose a stone from the stream, chucked it into the dark opening, and waited. The stone rattled as it struck an inner wall, but there was no other sound. A second stone from a different angle followed the first, with the same results. Ross was now certain that the cave was unoccupied. Once they were inside with a fire going at the entrance, they could hope to keep it free of intruders. A little heartened, he cast about a bit upstream and then turned back to where he had left Ash. No male, the other greeted him. This is a female, and she was close to whelping. He nudged the white wolf with his toe. His hands held a pad of rags against his hip, and his face was shaded with pain. Nothing in the cave, anyway. Let's see about this. Ross laid aside the bow and kneeled to examine Ash's thigh wound. His own slash was more of a smarting graze, but this tear was deep and ugly. Second plate. Belt. Ash got the words out between set teeth, and Ross clicked open the hidden recess in the other's bronze belt to bring out a small packet. 
Ash made a wry face as he swallowed three of the pills within. Ross mashed another pill onto the bandage he prepared, and when the last cumbersome fold was secure, Ash relaxed. Let us hope that works, he commented a little bleakly. Now come here where I can get my hands on you and let me see your scratch. Animal bites can be a nasty business. Bandaged in turn, with the bitterness of the antisepto pill on his tongue, Ross helped Ash limp upstream to the cave. He left the older man outside while he cleaned up the floor of the cave and then made his companion as comfortable as he could on a bed of bracken. The fire Ross had longed for was built. They stripped off their sodden clothing and hung it to dry. Ross wrapped a bird he had shot in clay and tucked it under the hot coals to be roasted. They had surely had bad luck, he thought, but they were now undercover, had a fire, and food of a sort. His arm ached, sharp pain shooting from fingers to elbow when he moved it. Though Ash made no complaint, Ross gauged that the older man's discomfort was far worse than his own, and he carefully hid all signs of his own twinges. They ate the bird, saltless, and with their fingers. Ross savored each greasy bite, licking his hands clean afterward while Ash lay back on the improvised bed, his face gaunt in the half-light of the fire. We are about five miles from the sea here. There is no way of raising our base now that Sandy's installation is gone. I'll have to lay up, since I can't risk any more loss of blood. And you're not too good in the woods. Ross accepted that valuation with a new humbleness. He was only too well aware that if it had not been for Ash, he and not the White Wolf would have died down in the valley. Yet a strange shyness kept him from trying to put his thanks into words. The only kind of amends he could make for the other's hurt was to provide hands, feet, and strength for the man who did know what to do and how to do it. "'We'll have to hunt,' he ventured. "'Dear,' Ash caught him up. "'But the marsh at the mouth of this stream provides a better hunting ground than inland. "'If the wolf laired here very long, she has already frightened away any large game. "'It isn't the matter of food which bothers me.' It is being tied up here, Ross filled in for him with some daring. But look here, I'll take orders. This is your territory, and I'm green at the game. You tell me what to do, and I'll do it the best that I can. He glanced up to find Ash surveying him intently, but as usual there was no readable expression on the other's brown face. The first thing to do is get the wolf's hide, Ash said briskly, then bury the carcass. You'd better drag it up here to work on it. If her mate is hanging around, he might try to jump you. Why Ash should think it necessary to acquire the wolfskin puzzled Ross, but he asked no questions. His skinning task took four times as long and was far from being the neat job the shock-haired man of the record tape had accomplished. Ross had to wash himself off in the stream before piling stones over the corpse in temporary burial. When he pulled his bloody burden back to the cave, Ash lay with his eyes closed. Ross thankfully sat on his own pile of bracken and tried not to notice the throbbing ache in his arm. He must have fallen asleep, for when he roused it was to see Ash crawl over to mend the dying fire from their store of wood. Ross, angry at himself, beat the other to the task. Get back, 
he said roughly. This is my job. I didn't mean to fail. Surprisingly, Ash settled back without a word, leaving Ross to sit by the fire, a fire he was very glad to have a moment or so later, when a wailing howl sounded downwind. If this was not the white wolf's mate, then it was another of her kin who prowled the upper reaches of the small valley. The next day, having provided Ash with a supply of firewood, Ross went to try his luck in the marsh. The thick drizzle which had hung over the land the day before was gone, and he faced a clear, bright morning, though the breeze had an icy snap. But it was a good morning to be alive and out in the open, and Ross's spirits rose. He tried to put to use all the wood lore he had learned at the base. But it was one thing to learn something academically, and another to put that learning into practice. He was uncomfortably certain that Ash would not have found his showing very good. The marsh was a series of pools between rank growths of leafless willows and coarse tufts of grass, with hillocks of firmer soil rising like islands. Ross, approaching with caution, was glad of it, for from one of those hillocks arose a trail of white smoke, and he saw a black blot which was probably a rude hut. Why one should choose to live in the midst of such country he could not guess, though it might merely be the temporary camp of some hunter. Ross also saw thousands of birds feeding greedily on the dried seed of the marsh grasses, paddling in the pools, and setting up a clamor to drive a man mad. They did not seem in the least disturbed by that distant camper. Ross had reason to be proud of his marksmanship that morning. He had in his quiver perhaps half a dozen of the lighter shafts made for shooting birds. In place of the finely chipped and wickedly barbed flint points used for heavier game, these were tipped with needle-sharp, light bone heads. He had a string of four birds looped together by their feet within almost as many minutes. For the flocks rose in their first alarm, only to settle again to feast. Then he knocked over a hare, a fat giant of its race, that stared at him brazenly from a tussock. The hare kicked back into a pool in its death struggle, however, and Ross was forced to leave cover to retrieve its body. But he was alert and he stood up, dagger out and ready, to greet the man who parted the bushes to watch him. For a long minute, gray eyes stared into brown ones, and then Ross noted the other's bedraggled and tattered dress. The kilt tunic smudged with mud, scorched and charred along one edge, was styled like his own. The fellow wore his hair fastened back with a band, unlike the topknot of the local tribesmen. Ross, his dagger still ready, broke the silence first. I am a believer in the fire and the fashioned metal, the climbing sun and the moving water. He repeated the recognition speech of the beakerman. The fire warms by the grace of Tolden. The metal is fashioned by the mystery of the smith. The sun climbs without our aid. And who can stop the water from running? The stranger's voice was hoarse. Now that Ross had time to examine him more closely, he saw the dark bruise on his exposed shoulder, the raw red mark of a burn running across the man's broad chest. He dared to test his surmise concerning the other. 
I am the kin of Asha. We return to the hill. Ash! Not Asha, but Ash. Ross, though sure of that pronunciation, was still cautious. You are from the hill place, where Lurga smoked with thunder and fire? The man slid his long legs across the log which had been his shelter. The burn across his chest was not his only brand, for Ross noticed another red stripe, puffed and fiery-looking, which swelled the calf of one leg. The man studied Ross closely, and then his fingers moved in a sign which to the uninitiated native might have been one for the warding off of evil, but which to Ross was the thumbs-up of his own age. Sanford? At that name the man shook his head. McNeil, he named himself. Where is Ash? He might really be what he seemed, but on the other hand, he could be a red spy. Ross had not forgotten Kurt. What happened? He parried one question with another. Bomb! The Reds must have spotted us, and we didn't have a chance. We weren't expecting any trouble. I'd been down to see about a missing burdened donkey and was about halfway back up the hill when she hit. When I came to, I was all the way down the hill with part of the fort on top of me. The rest... Well, you saw the place, didn't you? Ross nodded. What are you doing here? McNeil spread his hands in a tired little gesture. I tried to talk to Nodrin, but they stoned me away. I knew that Ash was coming through and hoped to reach him when he hit the beach, but I was too late. Then I figured he would pass here to make contact with the sub, so I was waiting it out until I saw you. Where is Ash? It all sounded logical enough. Still, with Ash injured, Ross was taking no chances. He pushed his dagger back into its sheath and picked up the hair. Stay here, he told McNeil. I'll be back. But wait, where's Ash, you young fool? We have to get together. Ross went on. He was sure that the stranger was in no shape to race after him, and he would lay a muddled trail before he returned to the cave valley. If this man was a red plant, he would have to reckon with one who had already met Kurt Vogel. The laying of that muddled trail took time. It was past midday when Ross came back to Ash, who was sitting up by the mouth of the cave at the fire, using his dagger to fashion a crutch out of a length of sapling. He surveyed Ross's burden with approval, but lost interest in the promise of food as soon as the other reported his meeting in the marsh. McNeil Chap with brown hair, brown eyes, a right eyebrow which quirks upward toward his hairline when he smiles. Brown hair and eyes, okay, and he didn't smile any. Chip broken off a front tooth, upper right. Ross shut his eyes to visualize the stranger. Yes, there had been a small break on a front tooth. He nodded. That's McNeil. Not that you didn't do right not to bring him here without being sure. What made you so watchful? Kurt? Again, Ross nodded. And what you said about the Reds planting someone here to wait for us. Ash scratched the bristles on his chin. Never underrate them. We don't dare do that. But the man you met is McNeil, and we'd better get him here. Can you bring him? I think he's able to get about in spite of that leg. From his story, he's been stirring around. Ash bit absent-mindedly into a piece of hair and swore mildly when he burned his tongue. 
odd that Casca didn't tell us about him. Unless she thought there was no use causing trouble by admitting they had driven him away. You going now? Ross moved around the fire. Might as well. He didn't look too comfortable, and I'll bet he's hungry. He took the direct route back to the marsh, but this time no thread of smoke spiraled into the air. Ross hesitated. That shelter on the small island was surely the place where McNeil had holed up. Should he try to work his way out to it now? Or had something happened to the man while he was gone? Again, that sixth sense of impending disaster, which is perhaps bred into some men, alerted Ross. Why he turned suddenly and backed against a bushy willow, he could not have explained. However, because he did so, the loop of hide rope meant for his throat hit his shoulder harmlessly. It fell to the ground, and he stamped one boot down on it. Then it was the work of seconds to grasp it and give it a quick jerk. The surprised man who held the other end was brought sprawling into the open. Ross had seen that round face before. Lal of the town of Nodrin. He found words to greet the rope man, even as his knee came up against the fellow's jaw, jarring Lal so that he dropped a flint knife. Ross kicked it into the willows. What do you hunt here, Lal? Traitors! The voice was weak, but it held heat. The tribesmen did not try to struggle against Ross's hold, and Ross, gripping him by the nape of the neck, moved through a screen of brush to a hollow. Luckily there was no water cup there, for McNeil lay in the bottom of that dip, his arms tied tightly behind him, and his ankles lashed together with no thought for the pain of his burned leg.